Hey everyone! Welcome to the RUF at TC podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU, please visit ruf.org slash TCU. Well, hopefully many of you will remember the famous scene from the movie that came out in 1999. I know that dates me and it probably dates you, The Matrix. And if not, I'm going to recount it to you. Uh, and then I'm going to implore you to go actually go watch it as soon as you can. Keanu Reeves, he's the main character, the lead. His character's name is Neo. And Neo has been living in a world that is not real. And at one point he goes to meet with a man who sees the world as it actually is. His name is Orpheus, who gives him a choice. If you remember the scene, Orpheus extends to Neo two pills. One in the left hand, one in the right hand. A blue pill and a red pill. And the blue pill, if taken, will put... And he wakes up believing whatever he'd like, continuing in the fake world, deluded like the rest of it. But if he takes the red pill, he will see objectively. He will see the matrix from the outside. He will therefore see reality as it actually is for all its good and bad. But here's the point, y'all. He'll finally see the real world as it's meant to be seen. Now I share this illustration with you, and I know I risk being totally cheeseball about it, but I want you to begin to sense and to see tonight that as we read Revelation 4, tonight John is inviting us in into the very heart of reality itself. The reality, the heart of... We're being offered, as it were, a red pill to see a world that is every bit as real as this one that you are in, but that your eyes cannot discern, that your senses cannot pick up, but it is every bit as real as you sitting in this auditorium tonight. We're being in the control room of the universe to see what lies at the heart of reality. And I'm going to suggest tonight that at the practical level, for all from having the wrong thing at the center of not only our lives, but at reality itself. And sadly, the two are often the same. And so the Spirit of Christ through John is going to show us here tonight if we'll look at what lies at the very heart, as I've said, of reality. And did you catch it? It was mentioned 12 times in 11 verses. A throne. A throne sits at the center of all of reality. And that's what John wants to show us tonight. John shows us a throne. One with a holy, beautiful, generous God sitting on it. And this is, believe it or not, meant to change our lives. So let's take a look at it. But first, I want to just mention a couple of caveats to help us navigate the waters that we're about to wade into. First, We've said this before, but you must see this tonight because it really begins to open up. Remember that images in the book of Revelation are not meant to be a one-to-one correlation to reality. They are like impressionistic images. Some of those know art and have the media of the paintbrush and stylus and, and palette. You understand what impressionistic art is. It's meant to leave an impression, not to give us a one-to-one correlation for the thing being painted. John writes like that. These images are meant to show us something. 
The details matter, of course, but not in a one-to-one correlation. These images are used to get, as we have said, at our imaginations. And not imaginations in some fairy tale way. No, the thing that helps us to see what is real, but not before our eyes. That's what John, we must remember that. Secondly, you must understand something about heaven itself. It's going to show up here. And heaven, contrary to how we often think of it, is not some place like up there. It's not north. It's not beyond 120,000 feet. That's not where heaven is. It's not beyond the stars. Rather, for John, heaven is, as one contemporary author puts it, I'll put it up on the screen for you, that heaven is another dimension of reality that is right here, close at hand, all around us, intersecting the visible, tangible dimension. If we could, you could almost envision pulling back like this and then seeing heaven. That, that's, that's how heaven is envisioned in John's mind. And we must keep that in mind if we're going to understand what he's talking about. Otherwise, we won't understand and we'll make mincemeat of what he's trying to tell us. And lastly, you have to remember, and this is very important, that John assumes that we live at a special time between the resurrection of Christ and his return. We live in the overlap of the ages, what theologians have often called between the already Christ's work being complete and the not yet. He's not yet returned. And so today, on February the 5th, 2019, we find ourselves in a place called the already and the not yet. Things are not what they once were, but they are not as they will one day be. And we live in the intersect of the ages. For John, that's critical and it'll be important to us tonight. So what do I want to show you tonight? I want you to keep these things in mind as we go through the book of Revelation. And let's take a look at what John wants to show us. First, he wants to show us the one seated on the throne. Secondly, he wants to show us what surrounds the throne. And thirdly, what is happening around the throne. So who's seated on it, what surrounds it, and what is happening. And again, I'm saying tonight that the throne is at the center. Let's take a look. First, the one seated on the throne. You probably caught it there in verses 1 through 3 and verses 9 and 10. It's mentioned. John is now seeing a second division. The first one we've already covered. Verses, chapters 1 through 3 were that first vision. And secondly, John is being shown this. And what follows isn't a chronological following, but rather it's what John just saw next. You see, the book of Revelation is like a series of visions, each in a cycle. And when one ends, another one picks up. But if you're trying to read these chronologically, as if they followed one another in their events, you'll get messed up. So you kind of have to look at this independently of what we've already read. And here John sees someone sitting on the throne. Did you see that there in, in, uh, in, the, first, in the first part? It says this in verse 2. I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The point being made here very simply is that He, the one sitting on the throne, God Himself, is in control of everything. The God John is showing us reigns and rules over everything in all of creation things seen and unseen. And since He does, there is nothing that falls outside of His vision and control. You know what a throne is if you were just to think of like the British monarchy. You think of rule. You think of reign. And you think of when a good king or a good queen is sitting on the throne, the people flourish. But if an evil or wicked king or queen 
is sitting on the throne. What happens to the people? They don't flourish. They suffer. And the point that John is trying to show you is that God Himself sits on the throne and He is presently reigning and ruling. Second, I want you to see this, that His beauty is breathtaking. Did you catch it? As John seeks to describe what he sees, he picks up on language from the Old Testament and uses the colors of stones to describe what God is like. Now John, being a good Jew, would never have tried to describe one-to-one who God was. That would have been a direct violation of the second commandment. To make no images. God was without form. But yet he tempts to describe what he sees. These stones, jasper and carnelian, if you're not familiar with them, are stones varying in color even. And are like the best that John can come up with to give us an impression of how beautiful God is. That he's using stones to talk about brilliance. Like when light hits a pretty stone, how it refracts light and how it reflects it and how they shine and sparkle. That's what he is seeing. Think about it like this. The point is something we all know. When, we're, when there is something in this world of perfection, we are struck by it. Maybe for you it's a live performance. Maybe the theater or I was just watching a virtuoso on the banjo. I've picked up the banjo in the past couple of years, and there's a musician named Bela Fleck who is an absolute ninja at the banjo. And I was just watching him today, and I was mesmerized by his skill and his talent. For others, it might be something in creation. Maybe it's skiing in the Rockies, or it's the break of a surf on the California shore. Or for others, it might be the accomplishment of some great athletic event maybe a gymnastics floor routine or an Olympic sprinter, and you just watch them perform and you go, wow, that is unreal. And it just moves you. And if you've ever experienced that, then you know exactly what John is writing about. He's saying, wow, the perfections of God are absolutely breathtaking in their beauty. They get down deep into my bones. The point is simple. John is seeking to give us an impression of how wonderful, of how beautiful, and how magnificent God is. It is what we read earlier tonight as the psalmist David put it. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's what he's getting at. And I think two takeaways are important for us tonight in light of the one sitting on the throne. First is this, that God really is in control of everything. Of everything. There is nothing that falls outside of His purview. And what this means is is that if He is on the throne, are you ready for this? You know who that means isn't? You and me. We're not. Revelation 4 is showing us that the throne of all reality is presently occupied and that we are not on it. And that this is what is at the heart of all of reality. And therefore, when we live life as if we are at the center of reality, which is easy for me to do, I I have a PhD in having the universe revolve around me. How about you? And Revelation chapter 4 is saying, this is what's real. Sober up, Ryan. Wake up. See. Look. You're not at the center of the universe. God Himself is. And He's reigning and He's ruling. And therefore, if we live, as I said, 
a way of life without that at the center, not only would we be foolish, but we're going against the grain of the universe in our own lives. John is opening up this for us because it is profoundly practical. It's telling us how to live. It gives us wisdom and promotes life. And it opens our eyes to see this, y'all. The illusion of ultimate control that we think we have. Like, don't y'all know that in your life sometime? Where you feel like you've been the master of your own fate? And your world begins to fall apart? And the sober reality comes crashing in? That you're not in control? What's that like for you? The world that you have concocted will not stand. And here's what I want to suggest to you. That for God to show you that you're not in control is actually a gift of His grace. It's to wake you up. It's like tonic. To wake you up to what's real. That God Himself is in control. That He governs all things. And you see, this is what I love to think about. Many of us think that being a Christian is about, quote, letting God be the Lord of your life. And that's funny because it's like as if He weren't already Lord of creation before you let Him. You you see what I'm getting at? I mean, God doesn't become Lord of your life by you saying, you're Lord of my life. He already is. The question is, will you bend the knee and, and admit it? You can either live apart from that or in line with it. And as the Scriptures say, one day, one day every knee will do just this. It will bow and touch the ground. Underneath His sovereign care, in His kindness and gentleness, or underneath His utter displeasure. And John is saying, every knee bows to the one who's on the throne. He alone is in control and not us. But I think secondly, it means this. And this must be held right there beside everything I've just said about God being in control. John sees the throne as breathtakingly beautiful. Not oppressive but good and right and wonderful. So much so that it brings forth worship, as we'll see. The beauty of God who reigns. And we're meant to look at God in Christ especially and see His marvelous holiness and at the exact same time, His wide love to sinners and to see that as staggering. Listen, if you lose the vision of the transcendent God Transcendent's a big theological word that just simply means other, out there, all-encompassing. If you lose that component of the God of the Bible, what is a flimsy, sentimental, sappy God? The God of love will be yea thin. You need a holy God. We need an other God. A God who is other than us and not just near to us. And we must hold those in tension like the book of Revelation is doing. Next week, we're going to see God come near. And it's going to be an amazing picture. But today, you must sit here and see this. You must, as it were, almost in your heart, do as these creatures and these elders have done. Fall down. Bow on your face. Put your nose in the ground at how majestic and wonderful and holy, holy, holy God is. That's what this is trying to show us. But secondly, 
It's not just that John is showing us who is sitting on the throne, but he also takes pains to report that which surrounds the throne. Did you catch it? Look again with me at verses 4 to 8. Verses 4 to 8, and we'll take a look secondly at what surrounds the throne, at what surrounds it. John then points the camera, as it were, to what centers the reality, the center of reality itself. Several things are meant to catch our eyes and our imaginations. And remember, you must see these things in symbolic, because this is where it kind of starts getting funky, doesn't it? It starts getting weird. But to start, you'll notice there is a rainbow, a rainbow of emerald. And that's a direct pull from Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, which is it? Is it a rainbow of many colors or is it green? Right? And John, if you were to ask him that question, he would say, yeah, exactly. Because these are impressions. He doesn't know exactly how to put it into words. It's, an, it's a rainbow like an emerald. And what's the point? The point is, is to highlight what an, a rainbow points back to in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 9, rather. Where God gave Noah a promise that he would never again destroy the earth. And therefore, this is a picture of God's mercy and His faithfulness. So before His throne, it's His faithfulness and mercy. Do you see that? That's what he's meaning to get an impression of. Secondly, the sea. The sea. The sea in Hebrew was thought as the place of chaos and disorder. But here, did you notice before the throne how the waters now rest? The chaos of creation becomes like a morning lake with not a ripple in it. All chaos, all disorder are put in absolute subjection because God reigns. We're going to come back to that in a second. The 24 elders, they likely are representatives of both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. And thus we find here the entire people of God represented, worshiping Him. And this is where it gets real funky. (laughs) These four creatures, did you catch it? Creatures like a lion, like an ox, one with a face like a man and an eagle in flight. The first thing that must be said is that, did you catch how many times John says like, 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 okay? What he is saying is, is these are like these things. It's like he doesn't know how exactly to describe them. In fact, the the Greek here, it it doesn't have the word creatures in there. It just says the living things or the living beings or the living creatures. That's the idea. And the point is, I take this, and most other commentators take this as well, that this refers, this refers primarily to all of creation before the throne. Now, a word real quick. Why is John using these images? And I think this is critical. Think about this. Let's think about your freshman year of college and you were taking a chemistry class. We're learning in chemistry to a seven-year-old. I mean, how would you talk about atoms and bonds? You might say an atom is like the smallest part of a thing, and a bond is like tape or glue holding them together. Because if you try to start talking in the terminology that you've learned in your first year of college to a seven-year-old, eyes are going to glaze over and they're not going to understand. So you have to bow down and use language and concepts that they understand in their native tongue. 
That's what John is doing. I mean, it's pretty hard to explain to a seven-year-old, if you're a freshman in college, how much harder would it be for John to get a glimpse into the throne room of heaven and to try to tell you what it's like? And so he uses things like, yeah, I saw this creature. I'm not really sure what it looked like, but it, the best I've got is like it had the form of an eagle in flight. That's as good as I've got. That's what John is trying to get across to make an impression upon us. Now, here's the one thing I want us to see by way of application, by just taking one of these images, that image of the sea. I want to come back to that and I want to talk about it. One of the ways this vision helps John's readers and us is that God is sovereign even over the darkest chaos in our lives. That is what the image of the sea of glass is all about. You see, life, because God is on the throne, is not meaningless and random, so says the Christian. Christianity stands in direct opposition to the philosophical position called nihilism. There is real meaning. Macbeth has said it, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That is not the view that the way that Christianity views things. Instead, God governs and rules all things from the swirling of stars down to the swirling of quarks. He is on the throne. And this is exactly, if you are like me, what we need to hear, especially if you are suffering. You see, remember John's audience. They were a suffering audience. They had troubles. And those troubles, because of the throne, have not escaped the caring eye of the God of the entire cosmos. He knows. He is in control. And listen to this, please. And even though we might not be able to make sense of our sorrows and sufferings, that in no way means that God doesn't make sense of them. That God doesn't make sense of them in His infinite wisdom. Oh, if we could see and believe that. If God is on the throne, and we mere men and women are not, that means that there are things in our lives that we may not know the reason for, but God most certainly does. And here's the thing. If we have a good God on the throne, if we have one who is compassionate on the throne, if we have one who has tasted our sorrows like Christians assert that Jesus has, then even our worst moments, even our worst pains are being used for His glory and for our good. I say this because precisely because some of you resonate profoundly with this in your life, even this very night. Life feels unstable and uncertain chaotic even. The job future is not looking clear for graduating seniors. What else? Well, loneliness seems to win the day as a student here on campus. The breakup still hurts after months and months of passing. The addiction just never seems to go away. I mean, y'all are human beings. You're just like me. You know what sorrow is like. How do we make sense of it? The throne helps us. It shows us it does not deny evil. It does not deny pain. It does not deny any of it. But because of the throne, we have a God that says, Do not fear. I rule the chaos 
in your life. And we might cry out, well, then make it stop. Does that sound familiar? And you know what? You should do that. Do you know you can? God's big enough to handle your raging. He really is. And he may well answer that prayer in that way. But he may not. We bow to him. We bow to him. For you Narnia lovers, you'll remember the scene where Lucy is talking to Mr. Beaver. Lucy's words to Mr. Beaver when asking about Aslan, she says, Oh, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And she asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? (laughs) Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, if God is God, and he is, then we are not. And if this God is good, and he most certainly is, he will never allow anything into your life that he will not use for your good. Again, I'm being careful here. There is real wrong. There is real evil in the world. But in God's economy, because he sits on the throne, the promise of the gospel is that all of the evil done to you and that you have done to others will be used somehow gloriously, majestically in the service of his glory and your salvation. That's amazing. Is that not stunning to you? That's how he works. So Jesus has shown John And through John, us, not only who is seated on the throne, but this isn't bare data. There is activity going around, and I want to spend time, lastly, looking thirdly at what's happening at the throne. It's real simple. Did you catch it there? Drawing on images of Ezekiel and Isaiah, John is showing us that the elders and the four living creatures are falling down in worship. They are falling down in worship. Why? Because they see. They see rightly. They've taken the red pill, as it were. And they see accordingly. They understand what we need to see. Did you catch it there? Look at that first song. It's, 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 it's there in verse 8. It reads as follows. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's a direct reference from Isaiah chapter 6. And you caught it as well. Not only are they praising and highlighting God's being, but notice who is the point of worship. It is always about God. It's not about us. And this helps us think about what worship itself is. TCU is a fairly Christianized campus. And what we must see is that worship is not primarily about what we get out of it. You need to hear me say this. This stands in contrast to what you hear people say all the time. Well, worship was okay for me this morning, but it just didn't do anything for me though. When you hear that, be on guard in your own life and in your friends. Worship isn't primarily about us. It isn't primarily about how it makes us feel. Now to be sure, God does tend to us in worship and reminds to us of His amazing faithfulness. But the primary object that worship centers on is the holy, holy Holy Lord God Almighty, not us. So maturity, therefore, as we think about worship, will look less and less about how it makes me feel and more about honoring and giving praise to God. 
Do you have that in your mind? Can I beg you as maturing Christians to quit viewing worship as something you consume and rather something that you come and give your heart to? To the thrice holy God who stands over all creation and the angels themselves cover their eyes, cover their feet, and cry out for all creation, I mean, for all eternity, holy, holy, holy. That is the one in whose presence we come. A great worship, therefore, may be like God humbling the pants off of you, which is never good. Seeing the perfections of His being, perfectly righteous, always truthful, completely just, will always humble us. And it is essential that this is never lost on our categories of what worship is. What I get out of worship always plays second, third, fourth fiddle to what do I give God in light of who He is and what He has done for me. Furthermore, worship is fundamental to all of us. Whether we call ourselves Christians or not, we're always taking something and making it supreme in our lives. This is not a hard concept to understand, I don't think. Maybe my three-year-old daughter will help you. A few nights ago, our youngest daughter was acting up at the dinner table. I had returned from a trip, and I would brought each of our three girls a toy and gave it to them when I had returned. Well, as she was acting up at the dinner table, I told her that unless she obeyed, I would take the toy away from her for the rest of the night. Her face got really sad. In fact, she said, wait, are you going to throw it in the trash? And while I was holding a massive laugh in, you can tell her whole body feared losing something that she loved. In this small way, we see something that all of us know deeply to be true. We praise. We enjoy. Are you ready for this? What has our hearts? Jesus put it this way. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We worship what we most adore, what most has our hearts. And we know we worship it precisely when the loss of the thing threatens our happiness. You see, when the guy you're dating is a friend and you lose him, you're sad, but life goes on. But when the guy you are dating is your everything, well, when you lose him, it's to lose meaning in life itself. Same with your reputation. There's nothing wrong with wanting a good name at all. No, but if the thing that defines your existence, then to have your name marred is to lose your very self. But y'all, when God, when God Himself is the thing that we base our life on, two things happen. One, we have something that we can never lose and that will never let us down. And therefore, our identity can always remain intact. And secondly, the praise, enjoyment, and wonder of God becomes increasingly easier to give. If He is the one who defines our existence and gives meaning to our lives, we will order our words and our entire lives, our praise like the elders and creatures around Him. But here's the thing. If all we see is the holiness of God, you know what? I'm, this is it. Here it is. We'll never be brought to worship Him. Because some of you feel that right now. You feel this big because all I've talked about tonight is the holiness of God. And you can't measure up to it. And you know what? That's exactly what this text is trying to get at your heart. 
It's meant to expose you because we're sinners. And we stand in the face and the presence of this God. It means the very ruin of our very being. Our guilt is exposed. And in shame, like our first parent, we run and hide in our shame. Unless. Unless. Unless we see how the holy God has taken on flesh Himself and made a way for sinners. And so I ask you, has God made a way of access to Himself for sinners who can't bear the holiness of God? I mean, if worship and praise and bowing down and wonder are the only appropriate responses, how will we ever do this? And you know what? This is where we land the plane. While we'll see this text in full relief next week, we're given a hint of it here in verse 1. The exalted cosmic Christ says to John, Come up here. This is access, y'all. Access being granted. And how in the world can Jesus do this? If what we have said holds true, is not Jesus inviting John to John's very death? And the answer is no. And the answer is no, not only for John, but for you and me as well. How can this be? How can sinners stand in the presence of a holy, holy God? Will not the holiness of God obliterate sinners? Well, not if God Himself is, as it were, obliterated. And friends, this takes us to the very heart of not only the book of Revelation, but the gospel itself. You see, the same Jesus that is beckoning, come up here, has Himself gone up for us, up on a cross. He was lifted up. He was raised up for us. And in His death, the justice of God met the sin of man and Jesus was consumed. Not you and me. And His death meant our life. Or to put it another way, His death granted us access. Presence with God. And not just that we might live, but that we might live all of our lives with the throne at the center. In the Gospel, God Himself has made a way back. And therefore, listen, the hands that granted access are nail-scarred. And when you see Jesus has given His life for you to have fellowship, access with Him, never ever to be lost, no matter what your sin, no matter what doubt remains, you can give your life all of it in wonder and in praise. I'll say this in closing. There are two commands in this text to come up and to look. And that is exactly what John wants us to do. We've been given access into the throne room to see But before you do anything for God, before you do the first thing for God, will you just take the red pill and see? Will you see the throne? Will you see Him who is and see that Jesus has made a way for us to be with Him? And look every day, right here, at the throne, until He returns, until we see Him face to face. Come. Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would meet with us, that you would take these things and put them deep into our hearts. And we ask, O Lord, that you would be pleased to do this, that we might see Jesus, that we might posture ourselves in heart or in body or both and bow down in worship and in wonder that the holy transcendent God has come near, has made a way for us. 
that we might know Him and have His presence again. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen.